students and parents are divided about the college's announcement to acquire a COVID-19 vaccine before the start of the fall semester. I'm not giving my child or allowing her to have an experimental um, treatment injected into her body where we don't know what the long-term effects are. I'll tell you more about what both sides are saying. Coming up, a romantic story about two endangered lovebirds, literally, who received extra help from a cleanup crew to help them get down and dirty at Montrose Beach. Stay tuned for a stitch and tell story about how fashion plays a role in the queer community. Keep listening for a round of books that deal with sexual assault and abuse to recognize Sexual Assault Awareness Month. This is Chronicle Headlines. I'm your host, Paige Barnes. More and more colleges and universities are announcing their plans to require all students to be vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to return this fall. Columbia is the first college in Illinois to require a COVID-19 vaccine, followed by DePaul, Loyola, and Roosevelt universities. But making vaccinations mandatory is becoming a polarizing debate like mask-wearing mandates. Staff and faculty are given the option if they would like to have the vaccine. I think that's a little unfair because we're all adults, so we should all be either required to have the vaccine or all be given the option. I wasn't super shocked. I kind of figured that was going to be the direction that Columbia was going to go in in the first place. I do think people should get vaccinated in general, but I do understand that there are people that don't want to and we can't really force them. Staff reporter Amaris Edwards joins me now to talk about why the requirement is being debated and what the college is doing for those who cannot get the vaccine. So the people that I spoke to, there was a d- differentiating um, opinions. There were students who um, agreed with the vaccination requirement because they wanted to um, be able to utilize um, on-campus resources um, that they pay for and just get that um, in-person experience. Um, On the other hand, though, there were students who opposed it because of um, certain factors like being a person of color and knowing, like, for example, the um, Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment where Black men thought that they were getting treatment for syphilis, but they were actually being like observed of what it does to their body. So there were students who, um, because the vaccine is new and kind of a a quicker, it got out a little bit quicker. They're just still wary of like how safe it actually is. And um, also students just had questions of like, what if they have religious or medical reasons that they don't want to take the vaccine and they didn't appreciate that it um, was a requirement and that they didn't have or felt as if they didn't have that uh, choice. What options are available for students who cannot receive the vaccine due to medical or religious reasons? So for students who um, can't receive the vaccine for medical or religious reasons, the college encouraged them to contact Columbia Central and then they could uh, fill out forms. They must submit a typed or signed statement onto MedProctor explaining the um, vaccination conflicts in regards to for religious reasons or medical reasons. And then from there, um, the college would decide if they like exempt them from taking the vaccine. But even then, if they are exempted, they still have to get tested once a week to be on campus. Um, But that's the requirement for them. 
One of your sources I remember was wary because students are required. However, faculty and staff are not required, but are strongly encouraged. Could you explain a little bit more about their perspective? Um, one of the quotes that um, he said was basically, he feels as if, if they wanna, he feels as if they're forced to get this vaccine if they wanna continue their education and really have that full like round college experience. And um, he didn't agree that the teachers is optional for them because they still have to be on campus with us as well. Um, so he just felt like that didn't make sense of it being a requirement for students and not for teachers and faculty. Can you speak about the vaccines offered on campus? So Pfizer's, Moderna's, and Johnson & Johnson's efficacy. Currently on the campus, the vaccine, the vaccines that the campus are um, distributing are the Moderna and then the Johnson & Johnson. And um, in an April Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study of Pfizer and Moderna, vaccines found the two-dose vaccine regimen prevented 90% of COVID-19 infections two weeks after the second dose. As for the Johnson & Johnson, um, it was a 66.3% effectiveness. You spoke to Diana Vera Cruz, who is a research scientist in the Department of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Chicago. What did she say about college students getting the vaccine? Diana was saying that um, it's important for college students to get the vaccine because um, it allows the it allows an increase in the number of classes that are actually in person. And with students getting the vaccine, it allows fellow classmates to be safe as well as everybody who works in the school. Lastly, how can students and faculty and staff sign up to get vaccinated through the college? Students and faculty can sign up to get vaccinated through the college by going to VaxQ. Um, on there, they can choose or which vaccine they would prefer. They can put... Um, if they want to set up an appointment either in the morning, afternoon, or any time. And then from then, the college will send them a notification when an appointment is available for them. Thank you, Amaris, for joining me today to talk about this. You can read her full article at ColumbiaChronicle.com. Piping plover mating season is upon us, and two special lovebirds receive special treatment through the Shedd Aquarium Action Days. Monty and Rose are two federally endangered piping plover birds. They are one of about 70 breeding pairs of the species left in the world. The birds first landed two years ago at Montrose Beach. Last year, they successfully fledged Nish, Hazel, and Esperanza. Here to talk about the cleanup effort and how you can get involved is photojournalist Zachary Klingenpeel. This cleanup uh, was one of several hosted by, um, hosted by Shed Aquarium as well as a number of other groups. Um, it was sort of a multi-group effort uh, in order to specifically pay attention to this one uh, you know, habitat and uh, that is home to this endangered species. Um, so you know, this, this, this specific cleanup was targeted at Montrose Beach 
um, which is home of Monty and Rose. They're two members of an endangered, a federally endangered species known as the piping plover species. Um, there's even, um, they're so popular now in this community that there's even a documentary out there about the two of them. Um, and, um, you know, they anticipated for these birds to come back this year. So they decided, you know, we'll come out, we'll have people socially distance and clean up this beach. Uh, and the specific purpose was to make sure that, you know, there weren't certain litters that could harm these animals and potentially mean a big risk for the future of their species. It's funny you mentioned that they're popular because I discovered today that they have their own Twitters. So you can go to <laughs> Monty Plover and Rose Plover as well on Twitter and just see their updates. Very cute. Um, setting the scene for me, how many volunteers were there and what were the volunteers given supply-wise? Even before the event started, you know, people could sign up weeks in advance on Shed Aquarium's website. Um, part of, it's part of Shed Aquarium's Action Days program. Um, and the event was hosted by, you know, multiple organizers. Um, so obviously Shed Aquarium was a big part of it, but also, um, you know, another big organization was the Alliance, uh, the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Um, there were three different, um, you know, birding groups that were involved. So that is the Chicago Ornithological Society, the Illinois Ornithological Society, and the Chicago Audubon Society. Um, and along with them, there were a couple of smaller groups involved. So, um, you know, Chicago Park District owns the land and, and manages the land. So they were a big help. And then um, because they are an endangered species, um, they also were receiving help from the Illinois Department of Natural Resources and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. Um, so, you know, it took a lot of people to, to organize it. Um, you know, on the actual day, they had a small tent set up um, and, you know, volunteers showed up. You know, in total, there was around 100 volunteers and they had to cap it off because, you know, they didn't want to have too many people on the beach for the sake of COVID. Um, at the event, you know, people walked up, they received buckets and gloves. And then they were able to, you know, pick up trash. Um, they were organized by, um, you know, different members of the Shed Aquarium team who sort of directed them into picking up, um, you know, specific types of trash. Um, you know, they were allowed to pick up, you know, any litter and they were encouraged to pick up any litter that they found, but specifically for the sake of the birds, uh, the types of um, trash they were looking for were, you know, microplastics, small, tiny plastics that could be mistaken for food. Um, a specific type that they were looking for was called nurdles. Um, which is something I learned about, you know, while I was there. Um, it's a small plastic resin that, um, you know, can very easily be, be mistaken for seeds and stuff like that. It sounds like this event was very um, inclusive in the sense that even if people who are listening right now would want to do their own cleanup work, even if it's not part of an official group or an event, they could partake in it. One of the conservation specialists that um, I spoke with at the event um, you know, talked about sort of how easy it is to sort of engage in these activities. Um, you know, you don't need a giant fanfare or, you know, a large group of people with similar interests. Um, all it really involves is taking, you know, a bag with you when you go out on walks or when you go to the beach and finding trash and picking it up. What else is the Chicago Park District doing to protect wildlife at Montrose Beach? The beach is home to several other birds. Um, and in fact, you know, totally unrelated from Monty and Rose, there's a, an entire dune area that is roped off and protected from the public. Um, you know, during the cleaning, people were in the area. Um, you know, a lot of the birds that are home to that beach, uh, you know, could be seen on that day. They have bird feeders and little bird houses out for them. And the entire roped off area, you know, has signs and is labeled. Since your article was published, something exciting happened. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. Um, since it was published, it was announced that Monty and Rose have returned to the beach. 
um, which is very exciting. They were um, they were predicted to be coming back the first week of May, so they were back a couple of days early. Um, and uh, yeah, now everyone is just uh, you know waiting to see what happens. Um, you know, I'm I'm positive if you could go out there on any weekend and find a couple of bird watchers out trying to find the two of them. That's really really adorable. <laughs> and lastly, how can people get involved with future cleanups um, with the Shed Aquarium? Um, Shed Aquarium and uh, this program, the the Action Days program, which you know this was a part of. Um, they have a lot of upcoming activities which you can sign up for online a lot of them are at capacity similar to this um you know so for example one of the one of the big cleanups that they have planned is it's on um specifically the name of the day is um chicago river day it's a river day cleanup they're looking to um they're looking to have over 2,000 volunteers around. Um, so it sounds like if they've already filled that up, you know, there's a lot of people uh, involved in it. They also have several other, you know, locations, and it's not just coastal habitats. Um, so in Bob Man Woods, they have two um, events coming up in May. Uh, at Skokie Lagoons, they have two events coming up in May. Uh, one is the Saturday, even um, at uh, certain um, rivers. Uh, they have they have planting cleanups. Uh, plan so at Damridge Rowing Center they have uh, they have two in June at uh, Kickapoo Woods they have a couple throughout the summer most of them are in August um, and then just like they had at Montrose Beach they have a couple of beach cleanups planned in the future you know on on your website you can see the full list of of activities that all sounds very very exciting you can read oh and thank you as well for being here to talk with me about the adorable monty and rose you can read zach's full article and see the photos that are also accompanying it at columbiachronicle.com April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Photojournalist Sofia Folino has curated a list of books that deal with sexual assault and abuse. She joins me now to talk about the books that explore the themes of recovery and trauma. I decided to create a book list for Sexual Assault Awareness Month uh, because I think that sexual assault, um, or sexual abuse, or sexual harassment is a very like isolating experience. I think that because there are so many different ways that it can happen um, and it can happen to people of all different ages, genders, um, sexualities, races, everything. Um, every, I guess, experience is in its own way different. And because I think that, especially in the media, um, there's really only kind of a, one or a couple different um, faces of sexual assault that we're used to seeing. Um, usually the assault of like a young woman um, by like a more quote unquote powerful or like physically strong man. And that's kind of, I feel like really the only thing that we see or are used to seeing, um, or at least maybe that's just, you know, what I'm used to seeing personally. And I think that that um, well, of course, that does happen. And that's horrific um, in and of itself. I think there are so many different other, you know, situations um, that are just as common um, and harmful that, you know, we maybe don't see a lot. I wanted to make this list um, in hopes that maybe somebody who is uh, struggling with either past or, you know, recent uh, sexual abuse or assault 
might find one of these books, pick it up and feel like, oh, I, this is close to an experience I've had um, and feel validated in some way. You also reported on or put in this stat about how often cases are underreported. What is that? According to RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, um, and they do, you know, a lot of work, obviously, regarding sexual abuse and assault, uh, about one in four cases of sexual assault are reported. So that's three in four that aren't reported. Let's get into the book list. You listed four. So let's go from what, um, which ones you chose and just a brief summary of what they are. First book on the list is uh, Disgrace by J.M. Coetzee. Um, and this is a book that uh, I know is really widely like in the college literature uh, circuit. So maybe some of you have had it on a reading list for class. Um, but even if you haven't, I definitely recommend you pick it up. Well, I guess I should preface it by saying that it's a very violent book. Um, and so that's something to that you should probably know going in. Um, but I think that, you know, in some ways, because it is a very violent book, um, it's jarring in ways that, you know, reflect how these experiences, you know, really are and really feel. And I think that's one of the strengths of the book is that it's very, very visceral. Um, and I really appreciate uh, how I think the prose is very sparse, but every word in this book uh, like needs to be there. Um, I think the prose is just really fantastic in that way. Um, and again, it's very, very visceral. The second book on the list, um, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, sounds very interesting as well because I have read quite a few books of Toni Morrison's. Um, and one of my favorites, uh, even though it's also very sad, is Sula. Um, I've also read Beloved. So I'm interested in hearing what is The Bluest Eye about. I have not read Sula yet. It is on my list. But I, I recently read Beloved. Beloved is fantastic. But yeah, if you are a to Toni Morrison fan, I definitely recommend The Bluest Eye because it is actually the first book that she ever wrote and published. So that is a, if you, you know, already know you like her work, definitely, definitely check it out. This book has a really rich setting. I think all of her books do. Um, she really takes us into the world of this small town. I think it's Lorraine, Ohio, which I believe is actually where she grew up. And um, <clears throat> she kind of explores the life of um, this girl named Pecola. And, uh, I guess kind of the trauma and the kind of horrible things that her family is experiencing through outside perspectives. So part of the book is told um, from the perspective of her childhood friend who is observing. And then the part of it is kind of through an omniscient sort of presence. The third book that is on your list is Once Upon a River by Bonnie Jo Campbell. Tell me more. It's a really fantastic uh, book that takes place in around uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, I think during the 1980s. It follows this girl named Margot um, over the course of many years as she takes this journey uh, down this river in Michigan. Um, she has to essentially flee her family after um, she is assaulted by her uncle and she decides that she needs to just get out. So she takes um, her grandfather's like little uh, skiff boat and just takes it um, on a journey down this river um, that mass ends up lasting many years. And along the way, she meets many different men and has many different kinds of relationships, both positive and negative with all these different men. Because of that, this book 
kind of just explores all the different ways that a woman can interact um, with a man who, you know, has sexual interest in her. Finally, we have Forgive Me Leonard Peacock by Matthew Quick, and another book that I have read um, quite a long time ago, but it was interesting because, well, you, you tell us how the, the format of the book is quite interesting. Yeah, it really is. So, um, well, to preface, um, so Silver Lang's Playbook is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, it was actually one of the movies that made me interested in a career in cinema. And um, this book is by the author of the novel that that movie is based on. Um, so he's actually written quite a few young adult books. Um, and so this is one of them. And that's the, the reason that I initially picked it up. Um, and yeah, like Paige said, um, it does have a really interesting format um, because a lot of the book is told in these little footnotes that the main character has like put in um, almost as if he's writing like a textbook or something about his life. And there are also um, letters that are inserted throughout the book. Um, and at first you don't really know who they're coming from or why they're there. Um, this book definitely kind of unravels and you uh, begin to understand it more and more as you read it. It was semi like teen angst as Catcher in the Rye from my perspective, but oh, yeah. not as cheesy maybe as Perks of Being a Wallflower or as like not as um, glorified and beautified. So I really, um, I think, forgive me, Leonard Peacock, if you're interested in um, teen, yeah, young adult from a, yeah, a male perspective is, is really good. What additional resources are available for students and the greater community? For on-campus resources uh, for victims of sexual assault, abuse, or harassment, you can call the Columbia Title IX office, which is available 24-7, and they can be reached at 312-369-1111. Uh, you can also call the RAIN network at 8 zero zero six five six four six seven three you can also uh use their location uh resource to find help specifically near you uh using your zip code thank you sophia for joining me today you can read her article to see the full list of books at columbiachronicle.com Fashion can be a powerful form of affirmation for many queer people. For decades, the LGBTQ community has been at the forefront of fashion. It doesn't have to dictate who one is, rather open the doors to expressing how one feels and who they're becoming. Here to talk about the power of fashion for the queer community and how it's creating a safe space for self-expression is the director of photography, Kaylee Slack. Queer fashion has evolved so much over the past decades, the past centuries. There are tons of different examples. You know, one of the biggest is even in the Victorian era. Um, lots of men, they were called dandies because they dressed more feminine and more stylish. There's also... Um, different aesthetics and breaks in history. Um, for example, in the 20th century, um, monocles were a really big thing in the lesbian community. According to Heather Milne, who's an associate professor at the University of Winnipeg, specializing in queer literature and queer culture, fashion was super important, especially um, in the past, because when identities were outlawed, it was a way for queer people to signal to each other and 
say, you know, I'm here, we are part of the same community. You know, the LGBT community has gradually become more accepted, even though there's a, a lot of work to do. It's not necessarily used to signal to one another, but more so to just express who you are and um, show off your personality and just be an outward expression of who you are on the inside. What can queer fashion look like? Giving me some examples. Queer fashion can literally look like anything. It can be huge, theatrical, super vibrant. Think Elton John, tons of colors, feathers, sequins, mesh. Um, can be super camp, but it can also be very chic, uh, feminine, all black, uh, grayscale, black and white. Or it can just be average clothing, comfy clothes, sweatpants, jeans, and a t-shirt. Uh, some people in the queer community don't think about fashion that much or consciously. Um, so there's really no specific way to label it. I do feel like the media often thinks that queer fashion is strictly very theatrical and flamboyant, and that is how all queer people dress. Um, but there's so much more than that. That's one of those caveats, right? That to not play into those tropes that all queer people look and dress like you know, uh, theatrical, as Mm -hmm. you had said. You also took photos that accompanied this article. Can you tell me a little bit more about the sources that you were able to get photos of what they dressed in? I took photos of four different Columbia students who are each amazing. And um, before our shoots, they asked me, what should I wear for this? And I just said, whatever you want, you know, anything that encapsulates your style and It was amazing because I got four very different outcomes. Um, Abby Mayhew dressed um, very comfy, casual, um, sporty almost. She had a graphic t-shirt with um, then a button-up t-shirt and then a jean jacket, lots of layering. Um, Most people did wear lots of jewelry, lots of rings and necklaces. Aiden Henry, I loved his outfit. He wore a pleated leather skirt with a silver belt white turtleneck, black leather jacket, black boots, black hat, silver chains. It was beautiful. Um, And it was just so bold and absolutely something that I could never pull off, but he looked amazing. And then um, Isaiah Moore, they dressed in very calm earth tones, um, long, almost kimono looking um, garments with um, a brown satchel bag, gold jewelry. And then Ariana wore this super cute, fluffy pink, like tool top with green pants and platform shoes, which were so cool. And um, a very plaid uh, coat. Those sources also shared a little bit more insight of what fashion and being queer means to them. So circling to Henry, um, who is a freshman acting and double marketing major and is queer, what did he have to say about why queer fashion differs from cisgender heteronormative fashion trends? So he was super insightful and basically encapsulated everything I've thought but never have been able to put into words just beautifully. And he explained that, um, queer people often have a different eye because they have different lived experiences and they're already bogged down and told that who we are is wrong. Um, And he had an amazing quote that if the world is going to look at us as freaks, then let's just be freaks. You know, if we're going to stand out, 
if people are going to look at us anyways, you know, give them something to look at. And so um, he explained that he feels that queer people and especially queer people of color are the trendsetters and they will set the trends and the status quo and then everyone else will follow that, not necessarily knowing that the trend came from queer people. What about Isaiah Moore? What did they say? Uh, They explained that they don't think clothes have a specific gender. And whenever they shop, they go in the men's section, the women's section, anywhere that they'd find something that they like. You know, if it fits them, then it fits them. And if they like it, they like it. It doesn't matter who it's meant to be for. You shared with me that you identify as queer. And I just want to end this segment asking how fashion and being queer, what it means to you. (laughs) If I'm being completely honest, I always, you know, read the like the jokes and the tweets about, you know, bisexuals cuff their jeans and wear the earrings with the objects. And um, before I fully realized I was bi, I was doing all those things just because that that's who I was expressing myself to be. And that's, you know, what, what I liked and enjoyed wearing. And then I was like, oh, I also like girls. And I was like, oh, this all makes sense. Depending on, you know, where I'm going or how I'm feeling that day, I'll try to, um, you know, wear something that I feel like sometimes other people can look at me on the street and be like, oh hey, what's up? You know, we can recognize each other and we can signal to each other because, you know, queer fashion is part of its own subculture. Thank you very much, Kaylee, for joining me today. You can read her full article at ColumbiaChronicle.com. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more at ColumbiaChronicle.com. For additional coverage, we are at CC Chronicle on Instagram and Twitter. The piping plovers you heard earlier is thanks to Jerome Fisher, XC182334 at Xeno-Canto.org. Chronicle Headlines is made possible by a collaboration with the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground under the leadership of Suzanne McBride, Chair of the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago. Until next time, I'm your host, Paige Barnes.